2: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Some countries that have compulsory military service are aiming to instill a healthy discipline or just teach some marketable skills. But that is not what's behind the recent spike in the number of countries embarking on or expanding the draft. And the pandemic has taught office workers of the world that maybe they don't need to be in the office, ever. We meet with some of the digital nomads working from anywhere but home, and the growing number of businesses helping them do it. But first, Traders at the London Metal Exchange have what is these days an unusual way of deciding the cost of industrial metals. Shouting.
0: Eight dealers sitting in a a red leather circle of sofas are trading with each other.
2: Matthew Chamberlain is the boss of the London Metal Exchange and a champion of the yelling-based system.
0: Most markets, be they stock exchanges or commodity exchanges, started out doing what we're doing, which is called open outcry trading. But unlike every other trading venue in Europe, we've maintained our trading ring.
2: The trading ring at lunchtime is like looking back into a 1980s version of London's financial heart, known as the city. Think men in suits with their blood up, a phone pressed against each ear. For a few minutes, it's all whispers and plotting. Then it can get rowdy.
0: We do ask our dealers to stay seated. Now, over the years, that's evolved so that you can be standing up as long as one part of your body is in contact with your seat.
2: Back in the 1980s, there was a wave of reforms and deregulation called the Big Bang, changes that made finance types pour into London. Traders in stocks left this open outcry system behind. The LME considered scrapping it after the pandemic, but kept with it.
0: There's always an element of sentiment, but I don't think it's just about sentiment. The people who said that they wanted to keep open outcry trading had some very good rationale for it, that it's what their customers wanted, that it's a very transparent approach because anybody can come and see it, that there's a long history of pricing with it. So I think it's more than just sentiment.
2: Other parts of the city are staying traditional as well, but with less success. The equities traded on the city's stock market are mostly 20th century companies, like miners, energy companies, and banks. Not a lot of the buzzy 21st century stuff like tech. London burst onto the global financial scene after the Big Bang, but these days it looks like it might go out with a whimper.
1: Compared to the rest of the world's London stock market has been doing pretty badly, go back 15 years. Of the world's equity market, 10% of the value was listed in Britain. Now that's less than 4%.
2: Josh Roberts is a finance correspondent for The Economist.
1: That's also manifested itself in bad performance. If 15 years ago you'd invested a dollar across the world's equity market, it would be worth over $3 now. If you'd invested it in Britain's, it would be worth about half of that.
2: And so what is behind that, that massive underperformance?
1: Well, we can't discount the underperformance of individual British firms compared to their global competitors. Part of this is down to Brexit, but it's not just that. London has ceased to be the place where many or most of the most exciting IPOs come. It used to be that one in five IPOs around the world happened in the city. Now that's one in 25. And London's biggest listing is a decade in the past. That was Glencore in 2011. If you look at the S&P 500, an index of the biggest firms listed in America, nearly 40% of that index is technology companies. Compare that to the UK, where less than 2% of the market is tech firms. So consistently missing out on the biggest and most exciting flotations has left London's stock market looking more like yesterday's world than tomorrow's.
2: So essentially the big problem here is a lack of new blood. But why aren't those companies coming?
1: A lot of it is self-perpetuating. If London's market is viewed as a place that undervalues companies, exciting firms will not choose that market as a place to list. Instead, they'll choose other stock markets where they can sell their shares for more cash. And then the lack of exciting firms choosing to list in London begets a less exciting market that investors will value less highly, and you get this vicious cycle. But there are other factors as well that accelerate the cycle.
2: And what other factors are those?
1: One of the problems is Britain's corporate governance rules and general listing rules. For example, a significant proportion of city investors are very against the idea of dual class shares. These are shares that allow founders and other directors of companies to retain an outsized share of the voting rights of the company while they still list. And they are allowed on pretty much every one of London's rivals. They're allowed in Hong Kong and Singapore and New York. But they're not allowed on the premium segment of the London Stock Exchange. And what that does for tech founders is it sends them a message that London's investment community does not trust them to run their own companies in the same way as London's rivals do.
2: And so the more tech companies don't come to London, the more tech companies don't want to come to London.
1: Exactly. And that's even true of British and European Tech and fintech companies whose natural home might have been London. But there's another factor here, which is the disappearance of two big buyers of British equities. So it used to be that a big buyer of British equities were individual UK investors. But over the last few years, they've been ditching their home bias. They've been buying fewer British listed stocks and more internationally listed stocks. Even more significant than that is the disappearance of British pension funds as a significant buyer of UK equities. They have £1.7 trillion of assets invested across loads of different things. And go back to 2008, and over a quarter of those were in shares that were listed on the London Stock Exchange. Now, because of a variety of different factors, less than 3% of their assets are invested in British shares. And the removal of a really significant buyer just reduces demand for these companies' stock.
2: I will hesitate to use the phrase um, rats from a sinking ship, but I mean, what what are the consequences here of this this downward spiral?
1: Well, that's interesting because for a lot of British savers, the consequences are really not that bad. They probably should be doing exactly what they're doing, which is ditching home bias and buying portfolios of equities instead that are global in their nature. For the economy, it matters a bit more. If London has a shriveled equity market, that reduces the options that founders have to take their firms public and cash out on their success. It's also a pretty big problem for the government. More than 10% of tax income comes from the financial services industry, and that is losing a big part of its draw. Part of having a full-service financial services industry is having a vibrant stock market and and that's starting to disappear. And the people who it matters most for is the city itself. It is losing part of its formula for success, if nothing else, because having a vibrant stock exchange acts as a pull on other financial activities as well.
2: So how to bring that vibrancy back then?
1: One thing that is Absolutely crucial, and that is already on the way, is allowing companies with dual class shares to list on the premium segment of the London Stock Exchange. And there are other proposals as well. For example, reducing the minimum proportion of the company that early stage investors need to sell when they float it. That might convince those early stage investors to be more amenable to taking the company public. Probably the thing that offers the most hope is that there's an up and coming cohort of particularly fintech companies that are almost at the point of being ready to list on public markets and for whom London is just a natural home because of the sort of talent and financial expertise that is already present here. So convince that cohort of fintech companies to list on London's market and you might start a virtuous circle that gets many more companies listing here.
2: So there's still some chance the city might stop looking like yesterday's world?
1: The city's success over the last several decades was in large part down to the set of deregulations that were dubbed Big Bang in the 1980s. But since then, it has become, for the equity market at least, less of a cutting edge place to do business. And if it wants to retain its outsized role in the global stock market, it's time for another Big Bang.
2: Josh, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much. A lot can happen in the next 3
2: years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. Oh, I'm just a typical American boy from a typical American town. I believe in God and Senator Dodd. And to many, the military draft is a concept that harks back me, to a bygone I era. I knew better than red, but when I got to my old draft board, buddy, this is what I said. And for the most part, that's true. The number of countries with mandatory service has been on the decline for more than a century. But over the past 8 years, that trend has been put into reverse. In 2014,
3: Russia invaded Ukraine and annexed the Crimean Peninsula. Russia is
0: growing large groups of pro-Russia troops surrounding Ukrainian bases, ordering
3: their forces off of them so they can occupy Ukraine them. Ukraine hurriedly reversed its own abandonment of military service, and that prompted a lot of countries to rethink the
2: idea of conscription. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor.
3: Other countries to bring in military service since 2013 include Lithuania and Sweden in Europe and Qatar, the UAE, and Kuwait in the Middle East.
2: And so what happened in Ukraine has driven all of this push?
3: I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a shock to the system. This was the first change in Europe's borders by force since World War II. So that did make a lot of countries rethink the idea of of hard power, military power, and and its ability to completely change the fate of societies. But I think that's not the only factor at work here. You know, for countries that want large armies, and you can think of Russia, you could think of North Korea, conscripting soldiers is often the only affordable way to do it. If you had to pay a million people full wages in an all-volunteer force, you wouldn't be able to afford it at all. Apart from the military factors, I think there are a lot of social and political ones as well.
2: Like what else?
3: So for example, in the United States, a lot of contemporary advocates for the reinstatement of the draft argue that compulsory military service might make American foreign policy less militaristic because people would have to reckon with the consequences of any decision to go to war abroad. A lot of politicians in other countries also see it as a sort of easy way to drum discipline into unruly young people, particularly unruly young men who might cause trouble otherwise, or as a way to instill values particularly patriotic values, the government deems desirable. We very much see this in places like Qatar, the UAE, Turkey, which all force conscripts to sit through lectures on national history, the security of their country, citizenship. There isn't much evidence that all of this stuff works, that it does make good citizens, but it is often the driving force in lots of these places.
2: And it sounds as if being drafted today isn't like it it always was, in particular in places that haven't had it for a while
3: it varies profoundly from country to country, Jason. So in lots of places, it's just a tedious process. You know, look at Cyprus. Cyprus hasn't been at war for decades. Conscripts there are principally doing menial tasks. In other places like Russia, conscription has a very bad reputation. You know, It's associated with pitiful wages and extremely serious bullying, institutionalized hazing. So bad, that in some cases, conscription has arguably been used in Russia as a political punishment. But there are a lot of places where military service isn't just an exercise in sadism. So look at Norway, for example, where army adverts are emphasizing the country's natural beauty. A few of them look more like an adventure holiday than a training ground for serious conflict. And I think, Jason, what's really interesting about Norway is that large cohorts of young people are eligible for the draft, but only a very small number of people are actually chosen. And so it becomes this very selective thing and therefore a very prestigious thing. Whereas in Russia, you have parents calling up the military recruitment office to say, please get my child out of this. In Norway, you have parents calling up lobbying to get their kids admitted.
2: But why though? Why would parents want their kids to be essentially put in harm's way though?
3: I spoke to a lot of Norwegian conscripts, and I heard a lot of examples that suggest employers may look pretty kindly on the experience of conscription. It sets them apart from their peers. And I think we see some really good examples of that in Israel, which is another small democracy where there's a culture of pride around the military. In Israel, schools boast about the number of students they've sent to elite combat units in the same way that an American school might boast about how many people they've sent to Harvard or Yale. And traditionally, there were certain types of units, elite combat units, that were seen as incubators of political and professional talent. Nowadays, the focus is all on Unit 8200, which is this sort of electronic intelligence unit, and its graduates have filled the ranks of Israeli tech companies. It's become this magnet for big tech talent, because these young people know when they get out their service and the networks they form during that service are going to mark them out as the cream of the crop. And that reaps real financial and professional rewards.
2: So in that sense, the draft starts to look like something that people just maybe want to have on their resume. It's another kind of social stratification. Politicians definitely
3: want conscription to be an engine of social mobility. And indeed, in Israel, the idea was that the IDF would be a sort of melting pot for society where people would mix from all walks of life. To some extent, that's true. But honestly, if conscription is supposed to change society, what tends to happen is that it just reflects it. Middle class Israelis are better placed at maneuvering their children into those elite units that I talked about. And kids from poorer backgrounds often end up in less glamorous branches like transport, logistics, not the kind of thing that a tech company is going to look at and say, we must have you. In Russia, poor families are simply less able to dodge the draft. Pretty much like any big institution in society, it tends to channel social divisions rather than transform them in the way that I think some ambitious politicians would like to imagine.
2: And so given that this trend has been reversed over the past eight years, do you think that will continue? Will there be more of it?
3: I see a lot of politicians in places like France, Germany, Britain, constantly talking about conscription as a way to heal political divisions, as a way to encourage patriotism. But in practice, war has changed. And conscription was very useful in the days of mass armies, where you needed lots of infantry on the battlefield going up against the other side. Modern war is much more about technology. It's more about who can operate complicated drones, who can execute tactical manoeuvres that require lots of training. And the fact is, a teenager who has been trained for a few months, who doesn't have very high motivation, who maybe doesn't have all the technical skills, they are not going to be as useful in that age of modern warfare. So I think there are limits to how far we're going to see conscription return today.
2: Shishong, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. I no fool. I'm
3: going to school and I'm working in a defense plan.
2: For some people, the pandemic heralded the start of working from cramped bedrooms suddenly repurposed into home offices. For others, it was an opportunity to explore. There is an addiction, I think, in moving and exploring
4: new places. It's, just, it's this shift to like, to globalism and to like,
1: everyone's a like globetrotter.
2: Now an increasing number of digital nomads are packing up and roaming into parts, well, a bit more known.
4: Traditionally, the digital nomad hotspots were places like Goa and Bali, sandy, sunny places that you dream of when you're stuck in a grey office in London or New York.
2: Avantika Chulkati is an international correspondent at The Economist.
4: During the pandemic, people have had to look closer to home when they make their travel plans, and Europe has become very popular. And why is that? There's a telecoms firm called Circle Loop that compiles this digital nomad index. And in that index, eight of the top 10 countries for nomads were in Europe. That's based on things like internet connection, the cost of rentals, things like that. Um, Also, incredibly importantly, once you are in the Schengen area um, within Europe, you can travel freely across the borders. So if you get bored of Spain, it's very easy to move into France. If you're bored of France, you can move into Italy. And finally, that freedom of movement, people are really making the most of it.
2: I mean, the way you lay it out, it does sound incredibly easy.
4: So, no, it's not that easy to uproot yourself and wander the continent. Uh, The two biggest barriers come in the form of regulation. It's visas and it's tax rules. So if you are a digital nomad, it's still kind of complicated to know which countries you can go into, how long for and where you need to pay your taxes. During my reporting, I spoke to a guy called John Lee, who's currently based in Ireland, but he's a very long-term digital nomad.
0: I basically spent seven years in the Netherlands, uh, traveled all around Europe when I was based there. And then my wife and I, we took our little uh, one-year-old baby girl around the world with us.
4: He began this consultancy, this company called Work From Anywhere. And it's basically like an Amazon for tax advice. What
0: you typically find is companies can have good uh, local advisors in their home country, but as soon as they go abroad, it becomes really tricky. You need a differentiated service offering depending on the countries and the risks that are involved uh, for different budgets. So that's the idea behind it.
4: It helps you find a tax advisor in Spain, in France or in the UK and get the constellation of advice you need according to where you've spent the last 12 months.
2: But on that point of immigration at a time when so many things are, are changing, don't lots of countries want those digital nomads, overwhelmingly relatively wealthy ones?
4: So absolutely. That's another reason why the pandemic has been a massive boost for the trend in digital nomading. Both Croatia and Estonia, for example, have um, introduced these long-term visas for people who want to come to their countries as long as they can prove that they can work online from there. Um, In Portugal, the government actually has some good visas in place. But the regional government of Madeira has gone a step further. They're offering a free co-working space. They're organising networking events. They have even started up an online portal with all the information you might need as a long-term visitor on things like accommodation, on visa rules, and so on. Um, It's it's very clear that this is important to these economies. The government officials I spoke to estimated that the average digital nomad there spends 1000 Euros a month.
2: And so that's what local and national governments should want. But what about the people who live in these places that are uh, nomad magnets?
4: So this is what's going to be really interesting, right? If you look at longtime nomad hotspots, you do start to get some resentment over time. You have well-paid outsiders that bid up the price of real estate. Not all of these people actually get involved with the local community. They go to nomad events. They stay in, you know, co-living spaces, especially for digital nomads. It's sort of a bit of a bubble.
2: And as with so many other things, I guess the question is, will all of this change outlast the pandemic itself?
4: So all the suggestions and all the academics I spoke to thought Definitely, yes. There are some structural things that have changed during the pandemic that are really boosting this trend. So employers aren't going to be able to just claw back these rules as soon as lockdowns end. So I think, you know, digital nomads, they're here to stay.
0: We're not going back to the way it was before. People, by definition, are immediately so much more cosmopolitan, like how much English everyone speaks. It's fundamentally different to what our parents' generation was focused on.
2: Avantika, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thanks for having
2: me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. I'll be away for a couple of days, but my colleague Patrick Lane will see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.